70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته معكم صديقتكم كنزة سليماني من الجزائر أبلغ من العمر 32 عاماً Hi, my name is Kenza Sleimani. I'm tuning in from Algeria. My ties with KBS World Radio's Arabic service date back to 2012. I found out about the channel from Korea by chance as I was searching for radio stations. Ever since I've been tuning in to the news and other programs, and since 2018, I've been serving as an official monitor. KBS World Radio's Arabic service taught me a lot and helped me have a better understanding of Korea. I would like to applaud everyone at KBS World Radio for running an outstanding and successful channel for 70 years. Congratulations on your 70th anniversary, and I wish you the very best in the future as well. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. It is Thursday, the 19th of January, and welcome to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. I'm your host, Hon Jang-woo. The police have raided the offices of construction unions as part of a probe into alleged hiring irregularities at construction sites. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. Health officials are expected to announce adjustments to the indoor mask mandate on Friday as the latest wave of the COVID-19 pandemic subsides. We discuss whether the nation is ready for our in-depth today. And coming up on Explore Korea, we discover the fascinating story of a computational artist and his solo exhibition in Seoul. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. Labour unions faced another raid on Thursday, this time by the police on construction union arms for the nation's two largest umbrella labour organisations as part of a probe into alleged irregularities at construction sites. Our KBS World Radio News Editor Koo Jin joins us in the studio now to tell us about the continued clash as well as our other headlines of the day. Hee-jin, hello. Hello, Jaewon. So it's another day, another raid on a labour union, it seems. This latest one comes a day after Wednesday's raid by the National Intelligence Service on the headquarters of one of the two umbrella groups I mentioned on charges of alleged espionage. But what can you tell us about today's raid and this separate investigation by the police? Well, investigators from the Seoul Metropolitan Police Agency swarmed into five offices of the construction union under the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions, as well as three offices of the construction arm of the Federation of Korean Trade Unions on Thursday morning to uh, seize evidence. The police also sent officials to the homes of eight officials of the construction unions. The raids are related to an investigation 
investigation by the police into allegations that the unions coerced employers to hire certain workers or to demand money from labourers in exchange for job opportunities. Uh, the police agency said it began conducting a special crackdown on such irregularities at construction sites on December 8th, arresting two people with an investigation underway for 126 people in 13 cases. And the land ministry said it received reports of more than 2,000 cases of unlawful acts at construction sites during a related investigation. Indeed, the ministry said on Thursday that it found 2,070 cases of improprieties at 1,489 sites run by 290 builders in a survey conducted through 12 uh, business associations, including the Construction Association of Korea. During the past four years, 1,215 cases involved tower crane operators demanding that builders give them a monthly payment on top of their wages, while five 567 related unions demanded payment for union activities. Other illegalities included the forced rental of union-owned equipment and union coercion of subcontractors to hire specific workers. Out of the 290 builders, 118 submitted losses incurred from such unlawful practices, which they claimed came to 168.6 billion won over the past three years. The ministry plans to verify the claims before seeking a criminal investigation as early as next week. Now, we mentioned that the police investigation on construction irregularities comes a day after the NIS raided the KCTU over allegations of espionage. The Umbrella Union has objected to both raids, accusing President Yoon sung yeol for desecrating the nation's decades-long democracy. So what more did they say? Well, at a press conference on Thursday, the KCTU, which is the militant arm of uh, militant uh, of the two umbrella groups, accused the government of excessively oppressing the unions. KCTU chief Yang Kyung-soo dismissed espionage allegations, saying that the raid is part of a political offensive against those critical of the government. Uh, Yang also slammed the morning police raid of the construction workers' unions over allegations of various illegal on-site practices, saying such labour oppression only serves to guarantee unlawful acts and exploitation in the industry. The union then announced plans for a nationwide rally on the May 1st Labour Day and a general strike in July to fight for the rights of labourers struggling to make ends meet amid inflation and interest rate hikes. Yes, there seems to be a brewing situation. We'll continue to watch for more on both those investigations and the growing friction between the labour unions and the Yun government. Let's turn now to President Yun sung yeol and his schedule overseas. He's in Switzerland to attend the World Economic Forum in Davos, but in a meeting with business leaders on the sidelines, he has called on global companies to invest in South Korea, vowing active support and deregulation. Can you tell us more? Well, Yoon made his pitch on Wednesday during a luncheon with 15 CEOs from global businesses and heads of six South Korean conglomerates at a hotel in Davos, Switzerland, where the Global Forum is underway. Uh, Calling himself the number one salesman of South Korea, President Yoon asked businesses to invest in his country, saying that both the local market and his office are open to them as he extended an invitation to visit any time. The president also hit 
hinted at possible deregulation for businesses while asking them to inform him of anything that runs counter to global standards, adding that if there is a lot of foreign investment, South Korea will be able to adjust its system to meet such standards. Yoon also promoted South Korea's bid to host the World Expo in Busan in 2030. The president sought global support for the bid during a Korea night event in the evening. Uh, Yoon said that he hopes the nations of the world will come together in Busan to jointly seek solutions to the common crisis forcing, uh, facing mankind. Meanwhile, Iran's foreign ministry summoned the South Korean ambassador in Tehran to protest President Yoon sung yeols recent characterization of Iran as the quote-unquote enemy of the United Arab Emirates. South Korea's foreign ministry also summoned the Iranian ambassador to South Korea to explain President Yoon's controversial remarks. So can you update us on the latest in this diplomatic row? Well, according to Iran's Islamic State news agency on Wednesday, Nezaj- uh, Riza uh, Najafi, the uh, deputy foreign minister for legal and international affairs, met with Ambassador Yunganyan on Wednesday to lodge a protest against the remarks and a request a f- clarification. Quoting a statement by the Iranian foreign ministry, uh, the report said Najafi highlighted Iran's friendly ties with most Persian Gulf states, saying that Yun's comments are tantamount to interference in the friendly relations and undermines peace and security in the region. And South Korea's Foreign Ministry spokesperson Im Suk told reporters on Thursday that first Vice Foreign Minister Cho Hyun-dong met with Iranian Ambassador to South Korea Saeed Badamchi uh, Shabestri. Cho uh, reiterated the ministry's uh, previous assertion that the president's designation of Iran as UAE's enemy was simply an attempt to encourage the South Korean troops stationed there and is irrelevant to the bilateral relations between Seoul and Tehran. And finally, a U.S. man accused of breaking into subway train depots to graffiti carriages throughout South Korea arrived in the country on Wednesday following his extradition from Romania. Can you tell us more? Well, the Incheon Nonhyun uh, police station on Thursday announced plans to file for an arrest warrant for the 27-year-old U.S. citizen on charges of trespassing into public facilities and damaging public property. The man is accused of breaking into subway garages in nine areas, including Seoul and Incheon, with an Italian accomplice last September and spray-painting graffiti on the side of trains. After confirming that the suspect and his accomplice departed for Vietnam, the police requested an Interpol red notice seeking their arrest. The Romanian police apprehended the main perpetrator in November and police plan to continue tracking down the whereabouts of his Italian accomplice. We'll wrap it up there for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you. Tomorrow, Friday the 20th of January, marks three years since the first case of COVID-19 was reported in South Korea. It's also said to be the day when health authorities announce when and how the indoor mask mandate will be adjusted as the seventh wave of infections continues to subside 
and is also set to be seen as a major symbolic step on the path towards the end of the pandemic. To discuss these latest developments, we have joining us on the line now Dr. Kim Sung Tech, who is the head of the Zoonotic Virus Lab at Institute Pasteur Korea. Dr. Kim, hello. It's uh, good to have you back on the show. Good evening. Thank you. So today, Thursday, new COVID-19 cases fell below 30,000 amid a slowdown in the latest wave. For a Thursday tally, it is the lowest in 13 weeks. And this is what has led to the Interior Minister Lee Sang-min saying that South Korea will decide when to lift the indoor mask mandate this week. Uh, today and recent days, uh, we have seen a slowdown. So, Dr Kim, mm-hmm. could we first get your thoughts on the country's seventh wave of COVID-19? Is it almost over now? And how has it compared to previous waves? Well, uh, uh, based on the, uh, some oldest tests that we have so far, I think uh, clearly the, uh, the now seventh wave is on the uh, some, uh, declining phase. And then the, the compared to the, uh, the previous waves, I think uh, this uh, wave is a little bit just longer than the, the previous one. But I think, uh, anyway, this is the uh, sort of just uh, expected because, uh, well, the uh, major uh, the contributor, the factor to just uh, uh, affecting the uh, emergence of these uh, new waves is actually our just uh, antibody levels. The antibody, the, the, so, uh, so to speak, neutralizing antibody levels is not really long lasting after our vaccination or just the infection. So it's like after four and like a four and three, uh, three and four months later after that, and then it's a declining. So now, the, which means that we could be just very vulnerable to the uh, some infection or just reinfection. And then this is sort of just what we have have actually uh, experienced this so far. Okay. So the numbers, however, look encouraging for now. Uh, One issue that the Korean government has been keeping a close eye on is uh, overseas visitors, particularly from China, Mm -hmm. after the recent surge of infections there, following uh, Beijing's lifting of its uh, zero COVID policy in December. How concerning is the situation in China? And do you think that concern is great enough for the government to consider waiting longer to decide on whether to adjust its uh, indoor mask policies? Well, I think the, the situation in China is, uh, well, a little bit just concerning, and in part because uh, they are not actually disclosing just the full information on the, uh, like, uh, maybe case numbers and then maybe the emergence of uh, variants and the proportions, such as uh, things like that. And then because of the reason, many just countries, including Korea, are actually taking some, uh, some control measures, like uh, more like uh, uh, the PCR, the screening, and then maybe reducing the number of just uh, flights in between just the two countries. And uh, other than that, well, other, other concerns is that actually uh, the, this is also just what we experienced in the last three years, where there are many just a number of just uh, cases, there are more chances of emergence of a new variants. So uh, well, for the variants, sometimes the variants actually emerges, which is actually just a property of evading our already just uh, formed just, uh, just, immune, just immunity. So that's kind of a concern, and that also limits the, uh, the weapons that actually we can use, for, we can use against the COVID-19. Mm. So the situation, of course, is concerning in China. But at the moment, it doesn't seem like the government will uh, delay uh, lifting some of its indoor mask policies uh, soon. So the discussion about this has been going on for some time now. Right, uh, right. Earlier this week, Chung Ki-suk, the nation's chief advisor on inf- mm-hmm. infectious diseases, said three of the four pre-designated criteria have been met to mm-hmm. lift, to ease uh, uh, 
indoor mask mandates, including a drop in weekly cases for two consecutive weeks and an on week decline in serious cases, with the weekly fatality rate remaining below 0.10%.、Uh, the other criterion successfully met is the ICU occupancy rate for critical COVID 19 patients. Uh, however, the goal for the rates of booster vaccination among the elderly remains unfulfilled. So, Dr. Kim, what's your take on the four indicators here and what they tell us? Well, the、uh, four、uh, the sort of just the factors that uh, uh, Dr. Gisak,、uh, John Gisak mentioned is、uh, quite just a reasonable criteria before the deciding just a mask mandate part of policy. And then, as he said, the, uh, the Uh, three out of four is actually well just met right now. But the last one is actually just a booster shot. This is something really,、uh, just a, actually, it is something really to,、uh, to, uh, it's, uh, difficult to accomplish because、uh, some people are now really quite exhausted. I mean, just、uh, getting just more and more shots. But the good thing is that、uh, if, you, we, if you are like、uh, some healthy, just、uh, normal, just young people, I mean, they are like a three shot program. Well, this is based on those mRNA vaccines. I mean, just based on the, some prior just,、uh, investigation. These are still just、uh, good enough to, just for preventing just,、uh, severe diseases and hospitalization. And that, although it cannot actually prevent infection itself, but as we have learned so far, the,、uh, in, preventing infection itself is、uh, really actually just very demanding. I mean, just our vaccination, actually, we are not actually aiming the, for the,、uh, some preventing infection. We are actually in real world. We are actually aiming for just preventing severe diseases and death. So, that's the, so, so actually, just the four criteria is quite reasonable. And then for the uh, uh, maybe some booster shot, maybe we need some、uh, plans for some, for some vulnerable people, how we can just protect the vulnerable people from the,、uh, some severe、uh, progression to severe disease and death. Okay, so it seems reasonable.、Uh, then, is this perhaps time now to lift the indoor mask rules? Uh, as we said, the announcement is set to come tomorrow, but the、uh, mandate is likely to be eased on January 30th. That's、mm-hmm. we expect when、uh, the eased rules will start. However, there are still concerns. The Interior Minister, Yi Sangmin, expressed concerns that、uh, infections could rise during the Lunar New Year holiday, when many people, of course, travel across the nation to、uh, meet with their family members. He also urged unvaccinated people to get inoculated. How serious are these concerns that、uh, the case numbers could rise after the Lunar New Year holiday? Well, the,、uh, after、uh, just a Lunar New Year's Day and then some other some national holidays and things like that, and then this is the really just a, just a really good chances I mean, for the viruses to transmit. And then this is also, we are still in the, in the middle of a winter season. So most of the activities actually occur in the indoor settings, which is also just to facilitate the easy transmission of the viruses. So that's why the government actually just、uh, maybe, if they just, uh, uh, just uh, uh, lift just a mask mandate, it would be All its time point would be just after the just holiday. So I, I think it is quite、uh, reasonable. And then the,、uh, we have、uh, actually discussed the mask, man, the mask mandate now, maybe just at、uh, least、uh, just a couple of months. And then this is quite reasonable. And then the, 
at the moment, uh, we are actually just uh, imposing some mask mandate as uh, some government guidelines. But uh, somehow we have to now just uh, switch to from the government mandate to the uh, some uh, personal re responsibility. And um, almost also there might be some exceptions, but uh, this is the the way we actually just pursue in the in the end. Mm. So you're th saying that uh, you do think that we're ready now to ease some of the indoor mask mandates. Uh, are there any concerns that this could trigger a spike in cases down the line? Well, of course, uh, if uh, we uh, actually lift the mask mandate, I, I would say the, uh, well, the number of just uh, uh, case, the case numbers actually just uh, will increase. But, uh, uh, and also the number of just severe cases might just increase a little bit, but not indirectly just proportional to the number of cases. Mm. The, the, one of the reasons is that the, our immune status is now quite different compared to the, those at the, probably just three years ago. So according to the, uh, some recent survey, the now more than 90% of the Korean people are, got the, uh, the antibodies, whether it was from the uh, vaccination or just uh, infection, which means that uh, now we, uh, most of the people now, now just not immune to the, uh, the, the viruses. So then that would actually prevent the, uh, so the progression to severe diseases. So actually the, our, the situation at the uh, population level is now just uh, different compared to those at the, uh, the three, years, three years ago. Okay, just to uh, stress, uh, reiterate, uh, the government expected to ease indoor mask mandates from January 30th, mm -hmm. uh, and the authorities have said that they'll be done in phases. So first, uh, mandatory mask wearing will be lifted in places such as restaurants, cafes and other indoor yep. facilities, but remain in place for high-risk facilities such as healthcare facilities, pharmacies, social welfare centres and public transport for now. Mm -hmm. uh, if we briefly look at the situation in Japan, on Friday, Japan is expected to decide on whether to lower COVID-19 to its least serious category of mm -hmm. infectious disease this spring. This uh, reclassification would put it on par with the seasonal flu. Uh, this means COVID patients need to pay out of their own pockets for their treatments. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's time for South Korea to consider such reclassification now as well? Well, uh, I think we have to consider it. And uh, this is something, I mean, this is inevitable because uh, somehow, uh, we well, somehow we have to live with the, uh, some COVID-19, well, at least for just uh, some uh, several decades for, from now on. So uh, the reclassification is something, uh, something is that we have to consider and also, well, but we have done actually something, I mean, just to, uh, something in preparation for such kind of reclassification. We have actually now, we prepared for, we, we actually prepared in terms of uh, vaccination and also some, uh, some therapeutic options. But the things that we have to consider also is that the cost issues. And, uh, you know, the still just uh, the main, one of the main weapon when we are actually impacted is the, the, is the drug, is, uh, the Paxlovid. And then this is still very expensive unless the uh, government actually supports the uh, payment of the Paxlovid. And uh, another uh, the fact that we have to consider is uh, some, uh, some mandated uh, quarantine isolation. So it's uh, still, depending on the country, like uh, still just five to the seven days of uh, just uh, uh, the isolation to prevent further transmission. But if we just just uh, change the uh, some of these uh, classes of the COVID-19, uh, similar to the, uh, the flu. So for the flu, we do not actually impose any just uh, isolation and things like that. So so then if we reclassify, 
then the thing we have to consider is uh, how we can prevent further the spread out of the, from this impacted person to other mm. unimpacted person. So there are things that we have to consider before just deciding the, this reclassification. And finally, let me just pick up on a point that you said there. You said mm-hmm. COVID-19 will be around for several decades. Uh-huh. So can we... Are we not expecting the end of the pandemic this year then? What lies ahead uh, for this year, do you think? Well, as I said, the, the, the virus will stay Earth at least uh, for well, several decades, and that's for sure. And, uh, and also, as I said earlier, the, uh, our immune status also now is uh, we are not naive anymore, but the, one of the main weapons, those are uh, neutralizing antibody levels, is actually just uh, fluctuating. So uh, depending on the, the uh, antibody levels, we are actually uh, uh, become just vulnerable to this uh, infection or just a reinfection. So depending on these uh, antibody levels, again, the, uh, the case numbers, maybe we would observe the future, just a uh, uh, surge again and again. So this is now we have to just uh, sort of just accept as a sort of natural things. And then, but the, the, we, what we have to actually just uh, uh, consider is that now we need uh, plans for vulnerable people. So one of the things is that maybe even if we just lift the mask mandate, maybe those people need to just uh, just uh, wear masks, especially for like uh, some uh, uh, some uh, crowded area, and then not just uh, well on on the ventilation is the on very poor ventilation just uh, places. And also we need uh, some very fast uh, test and also uh, the treatment because uh, most of the the drugs that we have right now, this is antiviral drugs. And the key point is that the, the sooner is the better outcome. So the, uh, the, 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 just the important point is that whenever these uh, vulnerable people get any symptoms, make, that those get, make those people get tested as soon as possible. And then when the test is actually turns out to be positive, to get, make them take the Paxlov as soon as possible. Right, so the mask mandates might be eased soon, but COVID-19 will persist and remain, so we need to prepare for the long term and how to deal with it. Exactly. We'll leave it there. We've been speaking to Dr. Kim Sung-Tek from the Institute Pasteur Korea. Dr. Kim, as always, thank you for your time today. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korean Composite Stock Price Index gained 12.02 points, or 0.51% on Thursday, to close at 2,380.34. The Tekevi Kosdaq also rose, gaining 1.14 points, or 0.16%, to end the day at 712.89. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 5.31 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,232.1 Korean won. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, it's Korea Trending, our daily segment, taking a look at some of the other news headlines that have been trending online today. And for that, we have Diane Yu joining us in the studio to bring us those stories. Diane, hello. It's good to see you. Hello, Jango. It's good to see you. Okay, so what stories do you have lined up for us today? Today, we'll first find out which countries send spam calls to South Korea the most. Second, we'll go over a story of a baby who was hurt during a fight between two postpartum caregivers. And we'll close today's Korea Trending segment with the latest news from the KBO. 
Okay, let's get straight into that first story then about international spam calls. Can mm-hmm. you tell us more? The South Korean communication service provider SK Telink has released a list of the top 10 countries with the most spam transmissions. The list, which was released on Thursday, is based on the analysis results of spam numbers blocked by the international call service 00700 for the year 2022. International spam is an illegal act of unsolicited calls or messages from abroad that try to stick a trick or scam the recipient. As of last year, Tunisia, with country code 216, was the number one country for sending spam calls to South Korea. It was followed by France, Georgia, Iceland and Monaco. Right. I would say that's quite an unexpected list. Are those countries some of the usual suspects? How does this year's list compare to previous years? The list is a bit different from the previous year's statistics. Last year, political unrest in Europe intensified following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And as as a result, Ukraine and neighboring countries like Georgia and Iran, where anti-government protests took place, emerged as new sources of international spam calls. In the case of South Pacific islands, such as uh, countries like uh, Tonga, Samoa and Fiji, which were previously top spam sending countries, the amount of new spam from these nations decreased sharply. So this was able to happen as SK Telink designated them as special management countries Mm. and strengthened monitoring and management of illegal spam. And each country's communication operators also provided efforts to block them. And as a result, the top top 10 countries in 2021 have all dropped out of last year's top 10. Right. So the list changes also depending on how the network providers are cracking down on them, it seems. Mm -hmm. But still, scam calls continue to be a scourge. What is being done to try and stop scam calls like this from happening? SK Telling plans to monitor countries with a high frequency of international spam 24-7 and block incoming calls from them ahead of the Lunar New Year holidays. This comes as during the holiday period, the frequency of calls from abroad rapidly increases due to people giving thanks and sending uh, sending greetings. Indeed. So be warned this holiday. And I understand that you also have some tips for people to be able to avoid being victims of spam calls. Right. First of all, if you receive a missed call with an unfamiliar number such as 216-33995-354 or 377, it's highly likely that it's a spam. So it's always a good idea to check the country code of the number before dialing back. And if you call back the number by mistake, press the end button immediately and make sure the call is disconnected. In addition, do not click on any unknown internet links that were sent by text messages. A more proactive prevention method would be installing a spam blocking or reporting app developed by and distributed by the government and related other organizations. Okay, some useful tips there. Thank you for that, Diane. Let's move on to our second story for today. What do you have for us? A shocking story was released by a local news outlet yesterday about a baby less than a month old who suffered a concussion after getting caught in the middle of a fight between two postpartum caregivers. The incident took place in November of last year in Hwasong City, Gyeonggi Province. Two helpers who were hired by a family raising twins through a government-appointed company got into an argument, and as the argument got heated. One helper who held a baby in their arms was hit by the other. Right, so one care <clears throat> right, so one caregiver went to punch the other caregiver mm-hmm. around the head, I believe, but right. as she did so, she inadvertently hit the baby as well. Right. So hard in fact 
that the baby suffered from concussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, how did the baby's family find out about what happened? Well, the mother was in another room when the incident took place. Mm. She ran to check what happened after hearing the baby cry and one of the helpers say, why are you hitting the baby? As I mentioned earlier, the child was taken to the hospital where it was found that they suffered a concussion and the parents immediately filed a complaint against the helper to the police. It's worth noting that footage of the assault was captured by a nanny cam. Mm. The police believe that the child was injured in the process of fighting between the two women and applied the crime of injury, not child abuse. The case was then sent to the prosecution. Child abuse charges were not given as the police ruled that there was no intention to hurt the baby. Right, so they're saying it was an accident. Right. Still, it's a nightmare scenario for new parents right. who put their uh, newborn in someone else's trust. Thankfully, it seems the child has not suffered from any lasting damage, although I'm sure the doctors will keep a close eye on the young child. Right. Did the company that hired the helper or the government department that designated the company make any sort of statement about this incident? Well, the child's parents were worried that the helper could work with other families, so they asked the government department that designated their company about her whereabouts but got no answer. The CEO of the company that hired the helper apologized to the family and provided settlement money, saying that it was the caregiver's fault. The problem is that if the case goes to trial and the caregiver is given a lighter sentence than imprisonment, such as a fine, she can get reemployed as a postpartum caregiver. The baby's dad urged the government to check the credibility of the helpers to ensure baby's safety in the future so that only people who meet the qualification can work. Indeed, I don't know what led to the fight between the two caregivers, but it would be concerning to think that someone who has failed to show such restraint around such young newborns could mm-hmm. be employed again. Perhaps uh, some t- sort of a review of the regulations or rules uh, might be necessary. Right. Let's move on to our third story of the day, our last one for today. Some news from the South Korean baseball scene. That's right. As we are currently in the baseball offseason, this is a time when clubs make preparation for next season, such as extending players' contracts. We have news of two notable players who have put pen to paper ahead of the 2023 season. Let's start with some exciting news for LG Twins fans. The club announced on Thursday that its star player, Oji Hwan, has signed a six-year extension that runs from 2024 to 2029 worth a total of 10 billion won or 8.1 million US dollars in guaranteed salary. The deal also includes incentives of up to 2.4 billion won or 2.2 million dollars. It's a big jump from his current four-year 4 billion won deal that was to expire at the end of this year. Yes, so big, in fact, that his uh, new contract with the team set lots of uh, records, right? Right. This is the first time that the Twins have signed a multi-year contract with a player who is not a free agent. And also with his large contract, O will have the highest salary for a shortstop in the history of the KBO. The previous largest shortstop contract, including free agents, was Kim Jae-ho of Tucson Bears, with a contract worth $5 billion won or $4 million. Oh has proven to be indispensable to the club, by taking over as the captain of the team last season and led the Twins to their most wins in a single season. So a big win for both the team and the player. Mm -hmm. You mentioned there were two players. Who's the other? The Samsung Lions veteran closer Oh Seung-hwan has had his annual salary cut by 200 million won, which is about $160,000. The Lions finished 7th in the KBO 2022 season and were not able to make it to the playoffs. The team also suffered a 13-game losing streak, the most in its history. 
For the 2023 season, after much deliberation, the team decided to cut O's salary from 1.6 billion won to 1.4 billion won. That's a downsize from about 1.3 million dollars to 1.1 million dollars. However, considering how important he is to the team, the Lions included incentives worth 300 million won or 240 thousand dollars. So the maximum amount that O can receive is 1.7 billion won next season, which is about 1.4 million dollars. Mm. A Samsung Lions official said that O is still an irreplaceable player and added that he still holds an important role in the team. Still going strong at age 41, which right. is pretty impressive. Yes. Okay, that's where we'll wrap it up for today's career trending. Thank you for those stories and we'll see you again next time. See you next week. Next up, it's Explore Korea, our weekly segment on a Thursday where we discover some of the nation's cultural, historical and travel highlights with our panel of special contributors, or explorers as we like to call them. Joining us in the studio this week, for the first time this year, is our arts and culture explorer, Anjou. So hello, it's uh, great to have you with us and a belated Happy New Year as well. Thank you so much, chang and Happy New Year to you too. Okay, so what do you have in store for us this week? Okay, so as you just said, today I'm making my very first 2023 appearance on Creatoring 4. And regarding my regular contributions to our show, I've made a New Year's resolution to not simply introduce significant figures in Korea's art scene to the world, but elaborate on why their practices are relevant to the contemporary, Mm. both domestically and internationally. And last week, when I got an invitation email from one of my favorite galleries here in Seoul on their currently running solo exhibition, my two immediate responses were, A, this is precisely why I love this gallery so much, (laughs) and B, introducing the artist of this particular solo exhibition to our listeners will be perfect for walking the talk, for properly exercising my Korea 24 New Year's resolution. So... It is my absolute pleasure to kick off my 2023 campaign on our show with an introduction to one of the most unique and insightful artists in Korea's contemporary art scene. Say hello to Min Koo Hong. Well, I think I can speak for the team when we say that we feel very lucky that we have someone who's always considering how to give more to the show. So uh, we very much appreciate that. Uh, Likewise. We look forward to what you will bring for us this year. Mm -hmm. So... Today, then, we are talking about the contemporary artist Min Gu Hong. What can you tell us about him? What makes him such a unique artist? Okay, so I said this, Chang a couple of times last year, and I'm saying it again today, but while I really don't care too much about an artist's academic background, sometimes I find it rather necessary to share with our listeners, Mm. and today will be one of those times. Because Min Gu Hong has one of the most unique academic backgrounds for a visual artist. He first studied literature and linguistics at Chungang University here in Korea, then went over to New York to study computer programming hmm. at one of the world's most innovative art schools, SFPC, the School for Poetic Computation. Now, Chang-ho, let me say that one more time. He studied coding at not MIT... Not Caltech, but SFPC, an art 
school. Okay, let me stop you right there. The school for poetic computation. Exactly. It does not get any more innovative than that, right? Wow, that sounds uh, unique, shall we say. Absolutely. And three FYIs regarding this particular element of Min Gong's bio. FYI number one, SFPC was founded by a group of four people, three artists and one data scientist. And one of the three artists is a Korean artist by the name of Choi Tae-yoon, yet another phenomenal artist I'd love to discuss on our show someday. And FYI number two, SFPC, as the name says for itself, is not your commonplace art school. Right, indeed. Mm -hmm. So the school's curricula explore various computational approaches to art and design with a constructive and simultaneously deconstructive spirit. For instance, A, writing poetry in not lingual languages, but in computer languages. Mm. So if you think writing poetry is challenging enough, try writing it in code. Right. Okay? Yes. And B, the demystification of software tools, which enables artists to use them in more creative ways. And C, developing computational hacks with respect to conventional artistic practices. And FYI number three, all the groundbreaking pedagogics can be equivalent to nothing, absolutely nothing, unless you have students of the new school actually creating new school art, right? Mm. Min Gu Hong being an outstanding example, as not only is he a technically talented computational artist, but he also applies his craft to deconstructing and debunking the very idea of art and design in our everyday lives. In the most unique insightful, and even social-slash-political fashion, therefore making him a fantastic artist to talk about on our show. Okay, so an artist who is the graduate of a fascinating-sounding school, exploring Mm -hmm. the crossover of art and computing. And uh, he is a computational artist who has social-slash-political aspects uh, to his work as well, then. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Now, in order to understand that, I believe it's necessary to first understand the social and political dynamics behind various practices of art and design in our everyday lives. Okay. For example, the soft drink section at your local supermarket. Now, when someone goes to the supermarket to buy a soft drink, what happens? Well, I think we can safely say that they usually see a bunch of different soft drinks. And among the many different kinds, they seemingly autonomously choose the one they are looking for, Mm. then put it in their shopping cart, right? Well, for someone like myself, being a curator and culture critic, this is what happens. What I see is a carefully curated exhibit of various works of design, Mm. which were most likely created by designers who have tons of experience in art education and professional design practice. I mean, think about it. Who do soft drink companies hire for designing their cans and bottles? Just anyone? Of course not. They hire the ones who have highly decorated portfolios and probably studied at the most prestigious art schools, right? That's right, of course. And again, it's an exhibit. It's an exhibition. And what I mean by that is these products are not just simple products, but again, they are works of art. That's number Mm. one. And number two... The manager of the supermarket, right? They make the section look good as possible, right? Just like what? An art exhibition at a gallery. You don't just (laughs) randomly hang paintings on the wall. As an active curator, I can tell you that does not happen. Sure. And what about locating the better selling drinks at the so-called golden section of the refrigerator, right? 
Just like what? Just like a commercial art show. Mm. The main pieces go to a special section in the gallery, in the architecture, at mm. that special wall. And what did I say earlier about the selection process which occurs when we purchase these items? That we seemingly autonomously choose our drinks, right? Well, if you're a reader of thinkers such as Noam Chomsky or Louis Althusser, you already know that there's no such thing as a purely <laughs> autonomous choice in consumption, that your choices are governed by some kind of hegemony one way or another. Right, there's uh, a lot of sub sub subliminal messaging and influences. Absolutely. Mm. Now, for instance, all those sports stars who appear in soft drink commercials, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> You know, those sports stars, they physically and chemically have nothing to do with the taste and nutrition of the drink. And as a matter of fact, how many sports stars are there who drink soft drinks as much as ordinary people, right? It's all the art of deception. It's like, hey, drink our soft drink and become like this athlete in our advertisement, which, of course, will never happen if you don't, you know put in the uh, workout uh, effort and all that other stuff, right? Yeah. So we can say pretty much the same about the commercial art of design. What they do is they hire star designers for fundamentally the identical reason to sell drinks with factors which have nothing to do with taste and nutrition. And when you have this kind of an understanding, you can finally better understand what exactly artists and designers such as Ming Guong are trying to accomplish. Right, well, it's been fascinating to learn about the uh, theory of supermarket shelf marketing through <laughs> exactly. an art curator's uh, perspective. Uh, it is fascinating. Job. But let's bring this back to Ming Guo. And seeing as we are starting to run out of time, perhaps better understand this concept through talking about his solo exhibition uh, and what we can discover there. Can you tell us more? Yes. So the title of the exhibition is To Whom It May Concern. And the venue is, again, one of my favorite galleries here in Seoul. It's called Primary Practice. And it's actually in one of my favorite neighborhoods in not just Seoul, but in the entire world, Puamdong mm. in the Jongdugo district, right? Beautiful, beautiful neighborhood. And the show runs through February 12th. Um, the director of this gallery is a talented curator by the name of Kim Sung-woo, and this gallery specializes in non-commercial exhibitions, and they focus on not just the art, but also the art of curating as purely as possible. What I mean by that is, so none of these like other kind of political and economic issues which commercial galleries have to go through. Right. Right? No strings attached. Mm. And um, when it comes to this particular show, to whom it may concern, it's interesting that they're doing it at this particular gallery because you're discussing commercial design at a non-commercial venue, mm. right? And um, a healthy number of the works are on the art of copywriting and its visual design, such as font, size, and color. And the reason why I'm saying this is because, after all, that's all part of the game in trying to persuade people sure. that this is the kind of thing that you want to buy, regardless of what's actually inside the can mm. or inside the box or, you know, that kind of a thing. Another thing that I want to mention is that when it comes to the copywriting, the majority of the texts in this uh, show are in Korean. So one might be scratching their heads saying, hey, wait a second, this is an English show. I mean, I don't speak the <laughs> Korean language. Don't worry, sure. because this is not America 24. It's not UK 24. It's Korea 24. You're about to, you're listening to our show because you want to know more about Korean culture, right? And on top of that, 
Even if the Korean language is not your strong suit, I am telling you as a curator myself, the morphology and overall vibe of the exhibition is more than enough for a genuine artistic experience. And by the way, if you're in Korea anyways, why do you want to experience something that you can experience anywhere else, right? Have that authentic and really original creative Korean experience at this show. But just be warned, uh, the works, they will display... Korean text, essentially. So yes. uh, you might not get exact meaning of each word, but uh, you at least get a feel for it, even if you don't uh, read uh, Korean fluently. Sure. Can you briefly, very briefly, tell us about some of the works that we will be able to see there? Okay, so as soon as you walk into the gallery, you'll, saw this, you'll see this small piece titled Considering Picky Customers, right? Considering <laughs> Picky Customers. It's a small piece, but I believe it contains the entire spirit of Min Gong's oeuvre. And because we're running out of time, I'll just say this, right? Those itty-bitty things you see on the internet all the time, they are actually way bigger than their physical size. And I think Ming Guang does a brilliant job in breaking that down for you in an artistic fashion. For any of our listeners who want a little sneak preview, uh, you can go over to our Instagram page to see some photos and videos from this exhibition, which Joe took for us. That's uh, KBS underscore Crow24 on Instagram. Okay, we'll have to wrap it up there. Joe, thank you for telling us about the artist Ming Guang and his exhibition. And we'll talk to you again soon. Lovely. Did you enjoy this segment? You can discover more segments like this throughout the week on Korea 24. On Monday, we bring you news from the world of sports around the peninsula. Then on Tuesday, notable guests from various fields join us and give us insight into their lives and work. Are you a fan of books? Then tune in on Wednesday for Korea Book Club where our book critic helps us unpack works by Korean authors or written on Korea. Go on an adventure with us every Thursday as we take a look at Korea's hidden gems with Explore Korea. And on Friday, listen to what our film critics have to say about the latest movie releases from both home and abroad. We have all that you need, all in one place, on Korea 24. Right, we wrap up as usual with our closing segment, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Crow Times and the Crow Herald. And for that, our staff editor, Richard Larkin, has joined us in the studio once again. Richard, hello, it's good to see you. Hello, good to see you too. So what's caught your eye first for tomorrow? Well, our listeners may remember the author, Bora Chung. We have talked about her on the show before, and she has even joined the show on a couple of occasions to talk about her work. According to Huan Donghee's article in the culture section of the Korea Herald, a collection of the author's early short stories will go on sale on Friday. Yes, uh, Bora Chung, of course, made her name for herself on the global literary stage after she was uh, shortlisted for the 2022 International Booker Prize. Uh, You mentioned the stories were Chung's early works. How early are we talking? All the stories were written between 2010 and 2013. An interesting fact that some people may not know is that the author went by the name Chung Do-gyung for over 20 years. Mm. There are nine stories that have been put together to make the book No One Will Know. So new fans will be able to enjoy her early works, while longtime fans will get the chance to read an unpublished story that was written during that period. So there's something for everyone. Yes, uh, you mentioned the collection which hit the shelves on Friday. This is, of course, a Korean language collection, so no yes. English translation 
as of yet, but considering how popular that book, uh, Cursed Bunny, was, I'm sure there might be interest for uh, translations as well. Right. Uh, but these are, as you said, old works, so yes. uh, perhaps a, sh- a sort of a stopgap between her future projects. I'm sure her fans are looking forward to more of her works. Does the article give us any insight into the author's uh, future projects? It does, actually. According to the article, there will be a collection of horror stories published later this year and also two full-length novels. Wow. She's been really busy. Mm. One of the novels will be released next month. Okay, so definitely lots to uh, look forward to for fans of Bora Chung, and hopefully we'll get some English translations of those works as well soon. Okay, let's move on to the next story. What do you have for us? Next is a fascinating story about a coffee house in Chuncheon, Gangwon Province. Kwak Yun-so sat down with Jo Soo-kyung, the owner of the coffee house, to talk about its very unique history and ties with Ethiopia. You can find the article in the lifestyle section of the Korea Times. Oh, interesting. OK, let's talk about the coffee house's ties with Ethiopia. Sure. I'm not sure if our listeners know this, but apparently Ethiopia was the only African nation to send ground troops to help South Korea during the Korean War. Mm. Out of around 6,000 soldiers that were sent to fight, 121 were killed in action, while 536 were wounded. In 1968, Joe's uncle sponsored the monument of, for the participation of Ethiopia in the Korean War. The African country's emperor, Hale Selassie, visited Korea to see the monument. During the visit, the emperor mentioned it would be nice to have a cultural center nearby. That's when the idea for this coffee house came about, and Joe's mother created the business. Right, so the idea was for it to be a cultural centre as well. Exactly. The building was decorated with handcrafted Ethiopian artwork and they used Ethiopian coffee beans as it has a reputation for being high-quality coffee. Mm. Take in mind the coffee house started in the 1960s when it was pretty rare to see cafes or places selling coffee. Mm. Emperor Selassie actually named the coffee house and gave Joe's mother the right to use the emblem of the Ethiopian empire. As a thank you... Joe's mother made a promise to the emperor that for the next 100 years, they will not leave a day without the smell of hot ground coffee. (laughs) The business will celebrate its 55th anniversary this year, and there has not been a day when it was closed. Wow. I couldn't include everything, so if you want to read the whole story, you can check out the Korea Times tomorrow. Yeah, it definitely sounds like an interesting story. 55 years, that's uh, pretty incredible. Uh, But So they're just a little over halfway to their (laughs) promise as well. Okay, we'll wrap it up there for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we bring our show to a close today. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition. So do join us again then to continue to get your daily dose of Korean news analysis. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Won jang and thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio offers all you need to know on Korea through its various programs. Tune in to One Fine Day with Lena Park and join the K-pop diva for two fine hours every weekday. Are you into the latest K-pop tracks? Then K-pop Connection is your fix. Brian Ju brings you the best of K-pop and K-culture. On Korea 24, host Kwon Jang-ho helps listeners digest all the biggest stories coming out of South Korea. Keep up with what's happening on the peninsula by listening to Korea 24. Learn about Korean folktales on Mondays with global audiobook Once Upon a Time in Korea. If you're a bookworm, don't miss Books on Demand, a program that introduces Korean literature to the global audience every Tuesday. 
Our Wednesday program, Korea Today and Tomorrow, provides news on the latest diplomatic developments in and around the Korean Peninsula. Want to go deeper than K-pop? Sounds of Korea takes a closer look at various traditional music every Thursday. KBS World Radio is your go-to channel for all things Korea. Tune in! Thank you.